Good evening. Welcome. How are you all today? Hey, Henrietta. Wow, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Glad you could make it tonight. Matt, great to see you. Thank you. Hope you're well. Everyone else? Anya, Katie, Morgan, Mary Beth, Barbara, Brooks, how are you? Cynthia, Eric, Liz, Green, and Emily Waters. Okay, let's start with our usual chanting. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. So this is one of those things like a bodhisattva activity, right? Where you do it and let go of the results. You let go of hope and fear and any expectation of results, right? And you've done that fully, right? <laughs> you could tell, couldn't you? Thank you. That's good. I didn't know it was it was that obvious. Neat. It's gonna be a mess, huh? Okay, so tonight we we uh, delve into the harder part of this material, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but. Uh, on the first reading, it was like reading ancient Greek, maybe, or Lithuanian, or maybe Aboriginal language. Just sort of like a word salad. Did anybody make it through the whole thing? Actually, like, able to read the whole chapter? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> it was tough. Tough stuff. Barbara made it. All right. Hi, Liz. Hey. So uh, I'm not going to try to go through it, uh, through all of it. It's not uh, necessary. Let's uh, look at some of the more important parts of it and do it sort of slowly so we can try to understand a little bit. Sort of the blind leading the blind here tonight. Uh, the only difference is that I've encountered these weird topics before. And uh, why why go through this these weird topics? Um, the same reason as the rest of it is that it, it provides a, a mechanism for us to understand emptiness in its full profundity. Uh, we're sort of building that capacity 
um, we're sharpening our intellect so that we can see clearly things ranging from self-deception to um, supposition and um, denigration in terms of ontology, presuming that something is there when it's not, or presuming that it's not there when it is. And uh, in particular, this chapter has to do with understanding how our conceptual mind works and sort of laying the foundation for that. Um, various aspects of conceptuality. So I would like to start with uh, Uh, toward, uh, I'm going to skip around a little bit. Hope that's okay. But uh, do the easier, some easier stuff first, which is towards the end of the chapter, page 189, the three classes of ascertain. If, if you're going to skip around, you need to identify more than the page number, please. I was, if you hadn't interrupted me. Okay. I was saying the three classes of ascertainable object. That ident is that locatable? It's the last section of this chapter. All good. Starting with the framework of uh, Tonglen, exchanging self and other, taking in pain and suffering, and uh, sharing whatever experience of happiness and joy and comfort and relaxation we have with our world. To explain the three types of ascertainable objects, if one were to categorize all types of ascertainable objects, they would be summarized in two types. Evident phenomena, which can be ascertained by direct perception, and hidden phenomena, which cannot be ascertained by direct perception and must be ascertained through reasoning. We've seen this before. It, it, certainly in other courses, and uh, yeah, maybe not in this course, but yet. Um, so we have first, uh, we have this little oddity where the section header is the three classes of ascertainable object, and it starts off by giving two types <laughs> to explain them. So there's uh, uh, evident phenomena and hidden phenomena and evident phenomena are evident to our direct perceptual systems and hidden phenomena are not and must be ascertained through reasoning within hidden phenomena. There are two kinds, slightly hidden phenomena, which can be established through logical reason based on objective facts and extremely hidden phenomena, which must be ascertained in dependence on valid testimony. 
which would be like testimony um, uh, in a courtroom of one's peers uh, through a process of uh, interrogation. Thus, the threefold classification with respect to the division of the types of ascertainable object is exhaustive, meaning it covers all possibilities. I'm going to skip the quote and um, on the bottom of, so skipping a few paragraphs and um, let's see, skipping three quotes, there's a quote from the Unraveling the Intention Sutra, a quote from Vasubandhu's auto-commentary, and then the quote from Dharmakirti's exposition of valid cognition says, other than perceptible and hidden, no other ascertainable objects exist. Thus Dharmakirti speaks of ascertainable objects being confined to the two categories of directly perceive, perceivable evident phenomena and hidden or obscure phenomena. The second category consists of slightly hidden and extremely hidden. Thus Dharmakirti states ascertainable objects to be definitively subsumed within this threefold classification. First, to explain directly perceptible evident phenomena, the definition of an evident phenomena is a phenomena that can be cognized by direct perception without relying on the use of a correct reason. The uh, reliance on the use of a correct reason would be inferential cognition or perception. Examples include such external objects as visible form, sound, aroma, taste, tactility, and so on, which can be cognized by direct perceptual experience. It also includes internal objects such as the feeling of happiness or suffering, or coarse levels of ideation, and so on. The definition of a slightly hidden phenomena is an object that is necessarily ascertained in dependence on reasoning based on objective facts. So, uh, in other contexts, I think earlier in this course we saw a delineation of reasoning based on different um, evidence, different types of evidence. Uh, such as rumor or common, uh, uh, commonly held belief, conventional, uh, conventionally considered beliefs, and things like that. Um, and in the Buddhist tradition, reasoning, inferential reasoning, is exclusively based on the evidence of objective fact. To give an example, even though phenomena such as a visible form share the nature of being momentary, they are established by direct perception. Nevertheless, their existence characterized by momentariness can be inferred by reasoning such as they are dependent on their causes and they do not depend on any additional third factor for their disintegration. So, 
Even though phenomena such as the visible form share the nature of being momentary, they are established by direct perception. Uh, meaning that even though they only last for a second, one can perceive them in that moment. And nevertheless, their existence characterized by momentariness can be inferred by reasoning. So we see a visual object and it, it keeps presenting itself as a continuum of the phenomena that functions to cause the next moment of its own continuum. And um, the aspect of momentariness is only understood by inferring inference. Because we don't see phenomena as being momentary on a moment-to-moment on um, -moment basis, but we can infer it based on the fact that we see things being produced by causes and conditions, and we see things gradually disintegrating over time without any other factor being applied, causing their disintegration. And so we can reason that there's a disintegration happening on an instantaneous basis simultaneous with the production and abiding of a phenomena. This characteristic of momentariness cannot be established by direct perception that cognizes the entities themselves, such as visible form. So we don't actually see momentariness. And uh, we distinguish momentariness from impermanence in general. We can see phenomena um, change over time. And from that also we can infer their momentariness. Similarly, when a person who is walking on a trail sees smoke rising over the summit of a distant mountain, he or she can infer the presence of a fire there. And so here's an example of inferential reasoning that gets at a hidden phenomena, a hidden phenomena being the fire, and we don't need to go through this. Um, this full paragraph, but skipping to the next paragraph, the definition of an extremely hidden phenomena is an object that cannot be ascertained by direct perception or inference grounded in objective facts and must be established in dependence on testimony validated through a threefold analysis. So it can't just be any testimony, but it has to, they, uh, have come up with some uh, rigorous way of uh, structuring testimony uh, to uh, determine testimony that's considered to be valid. The phrase validated, validated through a threefold analysis refers to the following. Scriptural statements or testimony pertaining to evident facts are not controverted by valid direct perception. So, uh, just to cut to the chase, we're talking about things like the intricacies of karma, karmic cause and effect, which we uh, normal or uh, mere human beings or mere sentient beings cannot observe either uh, through direct perception nor fully through inferential reasoning. We can we can determine cause and effect to a certain extent on a very simplistic level, but we can't actually infer karma that um, 
persists as a residue affiliated with a person and a person is the uh, continuum of a sentient being whether that's an ant or a human being it's called a person ants are persons too and um, Um, so the, the intricacies of karma, such as when karmic um, propensities ripen and uh, with what strength they ripen, is a nuance that we cannot see. We can see simple cause and effect through inferential reasoning, but not the nuances of karmic activity in that level. So we're talk that's what we're talking about. So... Um, and basically we're talking about uh, the Buddha being the pretty much the only guy in the room, person in the room, who can perceive ex extremely hidden phenomena. And so the three rules are that the functioning of this uh, activity or the, um, the evidence presented in the testimony about such a phenomena must not be controvertible or contradictable by ordinary direct perception. Secondly, statements pertaining to slightly hidden facts are not controverted by valid inferential cognition based on inferential facts. Uh, sorry, objective facts. So the first two are that uh, the evidence presented must not be contradicted by those types of uh, perception that we have, direct perception and inferential cognition. And thirdly, statements pertaining to extremely hidden facts have no internal contradictions between earlier and later passages, as well as between earlier and subsequent propositions. So you see from the word passages that immediately we're talking about statements by the Buddha made in what are, you might call scriptures or sutras. And so that there has to be an internal consistency in these, in the way that the Buddha has presented karma throughout the, the writings attributed to the Buddha. So they're, they're trying to come up with a, as much of a scientific method for this uh, area of Buddhism that is basically faith. Basically, we have faith in the understanding of the Buddha and that he has portrayed his understanding uh, f uh, honestly to us through the sutras. And so we have, we come up with these sort of uh, skeletal ways of analyzing that. So uh, we don't often see this level of detail in this presentation of uh, extremely hidden phenomena, so I thought it was interesting to go through that. To give an example confirming with our own Buddhist view in general, the, the fact that karmic effects only arise from the accumulation of con consonant karmic cause can be ascertained by inference based on objective facts affirming the general principle of causation that specific types of cause give rise to specific types of effect commensurate with them. So we can see this in the material world and we can see this in our psychological world where 
um, if we train our minds through focusing on the breath, that it creates a habit pattern of being able of ultimately, eventually, maybe someday, <laughs> of being able to uh, pay attention to the breath. However, as to what extremely subtle aspects of the effects are produced by specific subtle aspects of the cause, these remain for the time being extremely hidden since they pertain to the extremely subtle functions of karma. Such obscure issues must be ascertained in dependence on scriptural testimony, which is itself validated through the threefold analysis. And he just gave in the paragraph prior the threefold analysis. Um, with regard to this third category of ascertainable objects, extremely hidden phenomena, even from the point of view of everyday worldly convention, there are instances where the relevant facts need to be comprehended on the basis of testimony. For example, many past events must be understood in dependence on historical accounts. Similarly, the date of one's own birth must be understood on the basis of reliable statements of others, such as one's parents. That there are special contexts in which certain facts need to be established by taking the Buddhist scripture as authoritative, as stated in Dharmakirti's main text. And skipping the quote, thus Dharmakirti states extremely clearly that if a fact falls within the domain of inference based on objective facts, since it is established by an inferential cognition grounded in objective facts, there is no need for reliance on scripture in that situation. However, the relevant fact belongs to the third category. If, if, however, the relevant facts belong to the third category and is extremely hidden, then when proceeding to the third type of object, it is logical to reference treatises. So when engaging with a category of facts that are extremely hidden, it's, it is the way of a logician to rely on scriptural testimony. So that is the interesting uh, sort of detailed presentation of... Uh, the area in Buddhism that is basically taken on the face of the Buddha's enlightenment and, uh, and um, basically the system of logical reasoning uh, that Dignaga and Dharmakirti developed focuses on the enlightenment of the Buddha as the main um, the main sort of uh, presentation of Buddhism that the Buddha was enlightened is the main proposition of, of Buddhism and that he, since he was enlightened he was the very embodiment of reason and Dharmakirti's main text the uh, commentary on valid cognition focuses the whole beginning section on the presentation of the Buddha as the embodiment of reason Okay, so going back to other sections in this chapter. Um, the section that it begins with on one and many, I'm going to, let's see, no, it had an introductory section on definitions. I'm going to skip that. And I'm going to skip the section on one and many. And instead focus on universals in particulars substantial and abstract phenomena and then negation and affirmation as being the three most important ones 
So universals in particular comes after one and many, which comes after definitions. Uh, Cynthia, can you let me know? Are you able to uh, I'm okay. locate Got that? It. So in general, the question of whether, so for the rest of us, it's on page 171. Universals and particulars, page 171. In general, the question of whether universals exist separately from particulars, what might be the essential nature of these universals, and what is the essential nature of the relation between universals and the particulars they pervade, and so on, have been matters of detailed investigation by classical Indian logicians. Um, pervade. so. Uh, the relation between universals, so these are um, universals are um, ideas, concepts, and uh, um, some types of concepts are, rep um, are represented by the embodiment of particular phenomena within our domain of experience. So the, there's a, the universal of trees, and then there's particulars of the maple tree in your front yard and the Japanese maple tree in your backyard. And the universal tree pervades both instances of the types of trees that I just mentioned, and it pervades all of the other trees that you know and see in your experience. The notion of treeness pervades all instances of trees. So they're going to use that sort of odd language throughout this whole section. So it's good to make sure you are uh, comfortable with that. These questions shall be addressed in the presentation on philosophies. Where So uh, there's a subsequent volume, uh, volume three, that is on tenets of the different Buddhist systems, which they're calling philosophies here. And in, in that presentation, the, where the apoha, so apoha is a Sanskrit term that means exclusion. Where the exclusion theory, as well as the topics of how language engages subjects, according to Dignaga Dharmakirti's views, will be discussed. And so a poha is exclusion is the way that uh, generally characterized phenomena are identified. And I'll come back to that. But uh, basically when, when we think of trees, I mentioned the category trees, which is universal. And uh, each one of us in our own way defines what a tree is. And what a tree is, is necessarily vague because it's a universal. And so it has a vague description. And so you can't delineate exactly the, the boundaries of the group of phenomena, trees. And so the, the, really the, the only way that we're able to, to come to an understanding of what a tree is, is by saying what is not a tree. And thereby, uh, by 
that process of exclusion or of elimination coming up with the remaining phenomena in our experience that fit our version of treeness. So you might look at the, you know, look at the objects around you in your room and say, are those trees? And, well, probably not. And then look at the phenomena in your backyard, if you have a backyard, you know, and so on. And you come up with some uh, general conceptual idea of what trees are. And you've done that by excluding what's not a tree. So that's the Apoha exclusion theory, which is a rather interesting way of, of dealing with the identifying a phenomena that's not discrete. It's a really sort of brilliant way of doing that. Anyway, here with a specific focus on how to assist beginners to train their minds in the path of reasoning, such as me, a beginner. We shall briefly explain the type, the topic of universals in particular as they're presented in the summary text of their hero, the, the, the guys, the people who wrote this book, Chapachaki Senge. The defini definition of a universal is a phenomena encompassing its specific instantiation, instantiations, instantiations, something like that where its specific instantiations are necessarily under, understood to be its particulars. And so we see here uh, a, a sort of circular definition, which we should be sort of used to at this point since we started the whole thing off with defining matter as that which is fit to be matter in the beginning of the course. So we see that this is sort of like an internally created system that's uh, circular and self-referential and it only works in reference to uh, other phenomena within this system and that's done intentionally uh, because there is no external anyway um, a phenomena encompassing its specific instantiations, where its specific instantiations are necessarily understood to be its particular. So, in the example I gave of trees, um, the uh, the phenomena tree uh, encompasses every um, instance of instance of tree that you come up with. You make your definition of trees as you look around, let's say you're looking in a forest or a garden and you look around and you define trees and you decide sometimes one by one which fits in there and then you say, okay, treeness pervades that. And you know, there's a, there's a fuzzy area between like crab apple trees and shrubs, right? You know, there's, there's certain shrubs that are quite tall and are those trees or not, you know? And so uh, we, we may not all agree on the same division of trees and shrubs, but whatever you do decide as a tree then has treeness in it. <laughs> uh, let's see. Its instances include such things as a pillar, one of their favorite objects, a thing, <laughs> a noble object, existence, and what appears as a vase to the conception apprehending a vase. Now, th 
throughout this chapter, the examples given are used the term, they use the term instances, and some of them are very unusual or, or surprising. You wouldn't necessarily like think of these as instances, but its instances refers to the universal. So instances of universal include such things as a pillar, a thing, so these are groups of phenomena, a noble object existence, and what appears as a vase to the conception apprehending a vase. Mary Beth, help me out. I'm sorry, I had a question. That's going to help me. Thanks. It seems like, like when you said that we give it treeness, when we identify it as a tree and we give it treeness, that we're like doing that thing of giving it something that it really doesn't have, right? Is that like the whole giving yes. the other some? Yes, that was yeah. What I what I mentioned earlier of uh, presuming something's there that's not. There's no treeness in the tree. That's correct. We're endowing. We're blessing mm -hmm. that phenomena with our conception of treeness. We're projecting our concept of treeness onto it. It can be pretty violent in some situations. That's but something what, we have to undo, isn't it? Isn't that something we have to kind of undo? It is, and the the um, <clears throat> the idea is that understanding that we do that in as many different ways is ideally helpful to undo that and um, understand that all of the instances, so to speak, when we do that, uh, project our concept of a universal onto our experience as pervading the particulars of our experience, which is, the, is sort of like the main um, manifestation of ignorance in our moment-to-moment -moment experience of ourselves and our world, is um, extremely deeply rooted. You know, so th this is sort of getting at the heart of uh, how conceptuality is the manifestation of ignorance and sort of the per perpetuation of ignorance. And so, what's the what's the the opposite or the alternative of doing this sort of conceptual projection? It's particulars. It's understanding the the idea. Um, to use the funny word, the idea of particulars, but to understand what particulars are and how they differ from our projection of, a con of the concept onto them. You're looking at me, you're giving me an odd look. <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> Henrietta. Yeah, oh, was... you, you were muted, Mary Henrietta. I was just going to say that sometimes I get confused too that it's just that this isn't justifying our behavior. It's just explaining our behavior. Thank you. I missed that. Is that what you were getting at, Mary Beth? I don't, I don't know. Just that it was sort of the, the profundity of just by identifying it as this sort of 
um, universal or particular, like just that act of doing it is giving it this quality of treeness that I think is sort of like the the ego of the other that we're supposed to be trying to undo. So, I mean, we do that constantly, how we, I, we didn't identify right. the tree, right. but we do it with everything, everything. Const- uh, instantaneously, continuously, and constantly with everything we experience. And, and what Henrietta is pointing out in that I didn't, point out and that's not really evident here is this is not justifying it as being okay <laughs> oh, right. or, or good in any way this is just like saying this is this is what's happening and and by uh defining it and in, in this sort of logical way the idea is to really identify what we're doing and and uh position it against its opposite of actual reality in this system versus conceptual projection there is a necessity to it though isn't there it's yes it's extremely helpful it's extremely helpful and basically you wouldn't be able to function without it effectively so i think cynthia then anya so i i was just wondering that in uh you were saying that the idea of instead of the generalizing is is to go with the particulars, but even with a particular, like this specific tree, whatever it might be, even that is a conceptual operation there, right? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I was going to mention that a little later because it it becomes uh, a little more evident. But but yeah, you, you cut right to the chase, which is that in this system they don't they don't seem to like make a big deal. They don't seem to, I almost said they don't seem to know that, but that would be sort of crazy, but they don't like, uh, it doesn't bother them. <laughs> and they use a pillar as a particular, even though pillars, you know, made up of a zillion other particulars and a tree is made up of a zillion particulars. So because that would be almost like saying, oh, okay, it's okay to think you have a self as long as you don't group yourself as people. You know, that's, but that's right, not, as long as there's some larger group. <laughs> but that's not the point at all. I mean, the whole point is to, well, how to, how to do it, I won't try to address. But, you know, it's like what we've been talking about in terms of how do we actually walk around in the world and, and see it as illusory, right? The homework you've been. Uh, yeah, up. yeah, yeah. From the yeah, from a different course. Yeah. So in a way, it's that same challenge of not concretizing even each thing. Yeah, that's right. And, and so it all, it seems like, given that, that's what you're saying is clearly the case. The fact that they sort of stop at this level of um, it's okay at some some level seems to be like uh, this um, unstated agreement that they're going to go with conventionality. I mean, hey, I'll join that club. It's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all part, all already in that club. <laughs> well, they are realists, right? These yeah. are the realists. So. Yeah, but they, they readily, and we'll see it in one or two places, they readily break a pillar down to uh, matter and matter down to the eight 
partless particles you know so they are doing that and they know that but it, it's a, it's an oddity that they um, do what you just stated so let's uh, go further with it so he gives instances such as a pillar the list of instances is very odd a thing um, you know, a thing pervades all things, a noble object, likewise existence, and so forth. And what appears as a vase to the conception apprehending a vase, <laughs> which is a very funny phrase, meaning the uh, the perception of someone, uh, the uh, the perception of a universal, the, of the vase universal in the mind of any one of us. The manner in which is say a pillar encompasses its particulars is this the sandalwood pill you know so they just list a bunch of different types of pillars and so on are all specific instantiations or particulars of the kind of pillar and the type pillar pervades all these particulars hence the pillar itself is said to encompass its instantiations somewhat obvious stuff in many many ways and on the other hand very profound so if one were to define universal with respect to a specific example the definition of a universal of a pillar would be a phenomena that encompasses pillars as its instances you know it's funny that they they define the pillar based on its um manifestations as opposed to defining a pillar in the way that exclusion would define a pillar as that which supports a beam and you know maybe some other aspects of it but um, hence the pillar itself is said to encompass its instantiation so if one were to define, univer define universal with respect to a specific example the definition of oh, I'm sorry I just read that it's oh its examples would include impermanence, material form, noble objects, and so on. So this is a, a very odd list of examples. Uh, no, I'm sorry. This this is a list of examples of universals. Impermanence is a universal. Material form is a universal. Noble objects, you know. So all of these pervade their instances. If universals are classified on the basis of how the term universal is applied, there are three categories, type, composite, and objects universal. So we saw earlier in this text the use of the term type universal. And uh, so here finally we get the formal definitions and presentations of these. A type universal is defined as something that encompasses its own kinds. So a type universal is sort of like the identical with a universal its examples include such things as a pillar a human being existence a thing and so on since the meaning of encompassing its particulars and encompassing its own kinds so encompassing its particulars was the definition of universal and encompassing its own kinds remains the same universal and type universal are equivalent so for some reason they come up with this funny way of dividing universals into three types and the first type is identical with the 
complete category, which is really bizarre. But anyway, a composite universal, I, I think it's only done to distinguish these other two types of universals as being, I don't know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. A composite universal is defined as a coarse form that is the collection of its multiple parts. So this is, um, uh, we, we saw this when we did the Nagarjuna, those of us that were in the Nagarjuna course where we looked at different types of dependence and there's dependence upon parts and there's dependence on uh, causal efficacy and then there was conceptual dependence. And uh, so this one, composite universal, universal is dependence on its parts. A coarse form, that is the collection of multiple parts, the two, composite universal and coarse material form are equivalent. So coarse material form is by definition a composite universal and vice versa. Its examples include things as, such as a vase, a tree, a stream, and so on. So a composite universal means it's composed of matter. Since a vase is a physical entity composed from the collection of its numerous parts, such as its spout, base, belly, and the numerous subtle particles, it is a composite universal. An object universal, or ge generic image, i.e. a concept or an idea, <clears throat> may be defined by the example of a tree, that which appears to the conception apprehending a tree to be identical to a tree even though it is not identical to it. Very weird phrase that I believe means that um, the conception apprehending a tree seems to be identical to a tree, but it's not a tree. It is called an object universal in that it is merely a generalized concept of a tree grasped by thought. And uh, in other places we learn that one of the main strategies of ignorance is to um, conflate the generalized concept of our the phenomena of our experience with the actual particulars. And this is this is similar to, for example, the generalized idea one have one has of one's dwelling. Uh, Eric, was what Cynthia and you were just discussing a few minutes ago was that essentially the composite universal? That's correct. That's okay, correct. just to yeah. be clear about what you. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Somewhere else in this chapter, I think in the stuff we're going to look at, I'm not sure, but in, somewhere in this chapter, there's a little bit of mention of the uh, the matter, the, the details of that matter that makes it up. Uh, continuing, after the object universal, the next paragraph is the definition of a particular is a phenomena that has a type that, that operates as its pervader. <laughs> So again, we see these uh, def things being defined uh, by each other in this sort of circular way, by each other. Its examples include permanent phenomena. So uh, a particular, is a particular instance, uh, what we would call a specifically characterized phenomena. Its examples include permanent phenomena. That's their phenomena too, just because they're permanent doesn't mean they're not phenomena. 
I know for 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 most of us, uh, myself included, I think when we say permanent phenomena, we sort of say, well, there there are no permanent phenomena. That means like nothing. But we actually saw that there's uncompounded phenomena, and those um, those are an example of permanent. But uh, there is there are permanent phenomena in this system. Impermanent phenomena are certainly uh, instances or examples, earth, water, fire, wind, and so on. And we may illustrate the relationship of pervader and pervaded in the context of, say, water. There exists something that operates as the pervader of water, such as thing. So water is pervaded by the idea of thing. <laughs> and since water is necessarily a thing, thing is the pervader, while water is that pervaded which is like a really clunky way of showing you how they're using the terminology of pervasion. This thus thing is the type and water is the token of that type, namely it's a thing. Furthermore, there are three conditions that must be present for something to be a particular pervaded by a specific universal. In the example of positing a pillar as a particular token, and I guess they're using this word token as like example or instance. Um, in the example of positing a pillar as a particular token of a knowable object, a pillar is a knowable object. A pillar is intrinsically related to knowable objects, and there exist many things that share a common locus between that which is not a pillar and a knowable object. So there's other knowable objects other than pillars. The same can be extended to all similar examples of particulars. That which is a universal but not a particular. So we went through and did particulars and now we're doing universals once again. Is for example a knowable object. <laughs> that which is a universal but not a particular is for example a knowable object. So knowable objects can be universals and they can be particulars. Uh, so if you're going to define them in terms of knowable objects you have to say um, other than particulars for uh, universal Cynthia. Maybe I'm confused, but I'm, I guess I'm trying to figure out if things like water are considered particular, aren't they also general? Yes. They, they didn't make that clear, and I guess I didn't make that clear either, yeah. But yes, they're both general and particular. Because, I mean, if, if you just say water, it seems like that's more of the general concept and you'd have to talk about a specific instance of water to get into a particular, right? Yes, and that's, he, we tried to do a couple of paragraphs ago, the definition right. of a particular. Right, it, it was, that's when I got confused was it seemed like they, it just seems like they're sort of throwing these things around in... Unless, yeah, unless it's the carryover from the previous, that, but I, I just find that a little weird. Even like vases and pillars, they're... They're both. Okay. Yeah. I guess, in what way are they particulars? Well, the... well, if you look a few paragraphs ago, they're I'm... particulars in the sense of sandalwood pillar, juniper pillar, stone pillar. So again, they, they don't... And that's not pillar. That's, I mean, then you're, well, and even there, those are kind of general too. 
Well, we we did. We yeah, you I, and I okay. acknowledged that earlier. Okay, I, I <laughs> guess for I, some reason they it's it's sort of like they they agree to stop at a certain point okay, and just sorry. accept that they're there are objects that are made of that are composites, but they're particulars. Got it. Okay, sorry. I, I, I mean, I you know, and, and, and this is where this, yeah, this is where the system ultimately will fall apart. But initially, this is how they create their system, and then the Madhyamakas obviously, you know, just sort of make fun of the whole thing. Is there any school is. where they actually have a more refined view of it, or is this the main? I mean, this is the only. You know, to be honest with you, it seems to me the only school that does is the Chittamatra, where once you once you make everything mind, it it resolves these silly, you know, contradictions <laughs> in a, in a very simple way. Thanks. If that if that makes any sense, but other other than that, I don't know any system that like. Uh, does what you're saying, you know, really. Because I used to think that it was, I, I guess my cons, my understanding of how it worked was a little, it seemed to have the, the way we talked about it in previous classes, it seemed like it was a little more um, precise, I guess the word would be. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Henrietta. Well, I guess uh, I'm sort of looking at it as examining my own mind and how how I do these things like you know that's how I differentiate the world I mean it is a kind of a picture of my own mind in a way of how I differentiate everything around me how do I categorize things how do you know are some things concepts and some things seem more real um, even with the tree and the bush thing, I mean, science is constantly doing this too. You know, how do we define a bush? How do we define a tree? Are those one and the same? I mean, it's it's a reflection of of what we do, in a sense, right? So right. So so when you look at let's say in the uh, animal or plant kingdom, and you look at how how botanists draw like identify <laughs> like gene uh family phylum species yeah uh gen genus 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 <laughs> yeah um, exactly species and there's one other no but you know yeah. how do they how do they determine what the species is is somewhat arbitrary right yeah, it changes over time. <laughs> it, it, it sort of isn't species like members of the same species can reproduce, and uh, creatures like when you go up a, a level, creatures of different genuses or something can't reproduce. Anyway, they they it's like they pick a place to stop at where they're not going to divide it into further and it's almost like that's what the logicians here are doing it's like they say okay there's pillars and vases when we want there to be pillars and vases as particulars and then they say that there's an, a, an abstract universal of pillar and vase and they include types of them as opposed to they don't really drill down they acknowledge there's the composite universal but they don't really 
take the next next step and say basically any particular you know what you what Cynthia I believe is getting at correct me if I'm wrong is that basically any particular in our field of experience is also actually a composite universal right and for some reason they don't they don't do that uh, you know it's a, it's a really interesting question and let's let's you know keep exploring this and see if it becomes any clearer but uh, I don't have any other answer for that particularly so I think we just finished the paragraph on I don't know where the hell we are let's see maybe the the one with the three points in it I would think so yeah furthermore there are three conditions that must be present for something to be a particular pervaded by a specific universal people see that one the one before it is the definition of a particular is a phenomenon that has a type that operates as its pervader <laughs> its examples include permanent phenomena permanent phenomena earth water fire wind and so on I hope you appreciate the sort of humor that these guys have written this with I don't see a lot of laughing going on but I mean, is that the most one of the most funny sentences you've ever read? The definition of particular is a phenomena that has a type that operates as its pervader. No, I guess it's subtle humor. Its examples include permanent phenomena, permanent phenomena, earth, water, fire, wind, and so on. We may illustrate the relationship of pervader and pervader in the context of, say, water. There exists something that operates as the pervader of water, such as thing water is pervaded by the the uh, universal thing and since water is necessarily a thing thing is the pervader while water is that which is pervaded thus you know it's like really obvious level stuff that they're saying here uh, but it, it helps to bring it down to that really clunky world level these ideas of pervasion exclusion things like this because when you get into trying to understand emptiness the same uh, um, those same concepts are used and it's it's becomes a lot trickier and more much more subtle to identify what when when we the way that we believe things to exist what is it that we're we believe pervades every instance of experience that we have there's something that we think pervades everything that we're experiencing, right? And so this idea of pervasion, you know, it, it sort of uh, brings out a different nuance in, in how we project the, uh, how our ignorance operates in projecting the feeling of there being something that is there in everything that's there. <laughs> anyway. Derek, is that the Ness? The Ness? Yeah, that's good. I like that. Like Alan Ness. <laughs> you guys, you don't know. There was this guy named Alan Ness. Anyway, uh, like emptiness or treeness. I think that's what you were saying, right? But there could be like Alan Novick has Alan Ness, right? 
just like I have Derek. Yes, anyway. Um, there exists something that operates as the pervader of water, such as thing. And since water is necessarily thing, thing is the pervader while water is that pervaded. This, thus, thing is the type. So this is the type universal. And water is the token of that type, namely thing. Furthermore, there are three conditions that must be present for something to be a particular pervaded by a specific universal. In the example of positing a, a pillar, <coughs> Excuse me, as a particular token of a noble object, a pillar is a noble object. It's intrinsically related to, no to noble objects. <laughs> and there exist many things that share a common locus between that which is not a pillar and a noble object. So it's a subset of noble objects. And uh, um, they continue along the lines of odd ways of describing things. Finally, the same can be extended to all similar examples of particulars. That which is universal, but not a particular, is, for example, a noble object. That which is a particular, but not a universal, is, for example, a vase and a pillar. And this is what Cynthia has been talking about. So, vase and pillars are particulars. That which is neither is, for example, the horn of a rabbit. Horn of hair. Since a vase is the universal of a gold vase, which is the particular, and at the same time a particular or subset of thing, so they are acknowledging that there's this Russian doll nesting of, of different uh, universals within each other, right? Um, and at the same time a particular or subset of a thing, it is both a universal and a particular. Similarly, one can speak of material form as being the universal of a vase. A vase is a particular of a, of matter, and uh, material, uh, let's see, as being the universal of a vase. A thing as the universal of material form, so material form is a particular instance of thingness, ness, and uh, existence as the universal of a thing, so things thingness is a particular of existence and uh, non-thingness is the other type of particulars within the world of existences because there are non-things it's a tough audience tonight well it, it feels like it pretty clearly there is not talking about a vase as specifically characterized unique phenomena. Like they're just talking about taxonomies of concepts. Thank you for, for saying it that way. I think that brings out the nuance that, that they're not saying that these are, we're, that we've identified and achieved the ultimate sort of bottom level of manifestation of universals into the world of particulars and that there is some place finally where there's the real McCoy right. but just that there's this and um, there's this way of nesting uh, exclusion things within other things like if I point at the vase, you can't see it. I'm pointing at a thing. I don't even want to use the V word and reify it. I can't say that's the universal of gold vase the way they do. 
it's I, I relational. It's all relational. Right? But their their next sentence actually is a sort of an interesting way that right. it characterizes it, which is just greater and lesser fields of pervasion. So that that kind of uh, yeah yeah read that. What has a greater field of pervasion is characterized as the universal, whereas that which has a smaller field of pervasion is its particular. Thank you. Point well taken. Substantial phenomena and abstract phenomena. So in general, in Indian Buddhist epistemological texts, uh, substantial phenomena refers primarily to unique particulars that have real existence. <laughs> uh, I think we're hitting rock bottom now. Yeah, maybe. Actual. Maybe. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, bedrock. We're hitting bedrock. The town. The town of bedrock. Abstract phenomena, in contrast, are defined in terms of differentiations based on the elimination of that which is not it. Others brought about by thought and language. Other similar usages of these terms also exist. Substance is understood to connote substantially existent. And, and note the difference, the, the, new, the slight differences that they're using in this terminology. This section is called substantial phenomena. And uh, now we have substantially existent and substance. So those are three different words. And words uh, generally have uh, different reference. So the idea is that three these three different these three different words have different reference. And abstract phenomena. Other to read that again. Other similar usages of these terms also exist. Substance is understood to connote substantially existent. So substantial phenomena possess substance and therefore they're substantially existent. And abstract phenomena, in contrast, is understood to mean nominally existent. Uh, nominally existent meaning existing only through conceptual designation. In Chapa's collected topics, however, the terms substantial phenomena, abstract phenomena, must be understood in terms of his presentation of what are known as the eightfold substantial and abstract phenomena. And this is where it gets really bizarre. So I'm just going to read this first paragraph and then skip a couple of them. But um, we may illustrate some of these briefly by taking a vase as an example. Such since a vase is a noble object. And a vase is a vase. <laughs> it must be in the timing. Uh, and non-vase is not a vase. It is said to possess all four properties of a substantial phenomena. It is an established base. So an established base is a synonym of noble phenomena. And it's sort of like they just said the same thing a little bit. But it's important to know established space is a, a knowable phenomena. It is itself. Non-it is not it. 
I mean, it does get a little comical, doesn't it? And it's isolate. So isolate is the conceptual uh, idea of a phenomena that's come, that's uh, obtained through exclusion. I.e., it it itself is not mutually exclusive with substantial phenomena. In other words, it's a substantial phenomena. So, and it. Um, we don't have to go through these, thankfully. I'm not going to go through these. But uh, it's a sort of interesting list in, in the way that they try to identify that something is what it is. So let's skip the remainder of this. You really don't want to read that wonderful one about <laughs> since the definition of definition exists. In itself, definition is something that is defined and not a definition. Ay, ay, ay. I hope you guys are not mad at me for assigning this book for reading. <laughs> I didn't write it, okay? You can only blame me for assigning it, not for writing it. That is like quite an amazing sentence okay let's skip the remainder of that and skip contradiction and uh, focus on what are I think more helpful sections which are negation and affirmation so negate uh, I skipped I skipped explaining contradiction and then I skipped um, explaining relation and it's after that negation affirmation. So for us, once page one seventy nine, are you identified there, Cynthia? I'm good. All systems go. The presentation on negation and affirmation is closely related to grasping the theory of Anya Poha, exclusion of others. Gotta exclude the others. Or a poha exclusion. which is essential for understanding the nature of reality as well as how the mind engages reality. Also, when one engages in negation and affirmation, it becomes crucial to recognize the scope of negation through logical reasoning. In all such matters, understanding of the nature of negation and affirmation remains of vital importance. In general, whatever the given phenomena, so long as it is something that has a def defined entity, one must define its identity, sorry, um, as long as it is something that has a defined identity, one must define its identity in terms of negating what it is not. This said, phenomena such as a vase, a pillar, a tree, or a flower, which are objects of perception by sensory consciousness, by themselves must be posited principally as positive phenomena. They present themselves positively instead of negatively by exclusion. When we see, a, 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 when we see whatever we see through our visual or other uh, sensory perceptions, they present themselves positively, whereas conceptual mind works by negating. It works in the negation. It goes the other way. 
whenever we think of something, we eliminate what we're not thinking about. And whenever we experience through our senses, uh, we experience what what is presented. And we also experience the whole thing um, simultaneously, the whole phenomena. Now we know that has Madhyamaka ontological problems in it, but um, and then what, with the conceptual process of elimination of others, we we identify different aspects. So objects present them objects of concept. The, the object of conceptual mind uh, presents itself in a fragmented way. Anyway. In general, whatever the given phenomenon, so long as it is something that has a defined identity, one, one must define its identity in terms of negating what it is not. This said, phenomena such as a vase, a pillar, a tree, or a flower, which are objects of perception by sensory consciousness, by themselves must be posited principally as positive phenomena. However, the negation of non-vase or of non-pillar. So the negation of non-vase is... Anyone? A vase. A vase. <laughs> so it's this ridiculously, ridiculously clunky way of speaking, uh, but showing how a pohar exclusion works. We've negated everything that's not a vase, and so they start to, to uh, call a vase that which is the negation of non-vase. Um, okay. However, the negation of non-vase or of non-pillar, which are defined by the elimination of their dissimilar classes, so you eliminate everything that's not similar to it, since they are defined by the negation of their opposites, they uh, must be understood as forms of negation. Thus, when one states that which is not a, a non-vase or that which is not a non-pillar, the reference is to something that is a vase or a pillar. As the saying goes, two negatives make a positive. This said, once, uh, sorry, since the two, not a vase, what, don't we say two wrong, wrongs don't make a right? And two negatives do make a positive in the grammatical sense. Okay, sorry to interrupt things. Uh, this said, since the two, not a non-vase and not a non-pillar are defined by negation of non-vase and non-pillar. They are forms of negation, not affirmation. So sort of belaboring this point over and over again. But uh, the idea is that negation is how we uh, understand emptiness. So they go to great lengths to explain and define and extrapolate what negation is. Similarly, in the case of the absence of a vase, except for defining it in terms of the negation of its opposite, to identify, uh, sorry, no identity can be posited by way of its essential nature. So they just want to be exhaustively clear that uh, that exclusion is complete conceptuality and there's no positive um, the way that we get at conceptual objects is completely by negation and exclusion and there's no positive support or basis for conceptuality 
um, in contrast, something like a vase can be defined by way of its own identity without depending on explicitly negating its opposite, non-vase. Therefore, the absence of a vase is posited in negation, whereas vase is posited as affirmation. First, in defining negations and affirmations, negation is a phenomena that must be cognized by the mind that directly comprehends it. First, in defining negations, one more time, and affirmations, negation is a phenomena that must be cognized by the mind that directly comprehends it. So, uh, um, negation is um, experienced by the mind that's negating, directly precluding its negandum. That's what negation does. It's, it, in this clunky language, it negates its object of negation. Negation, exclusion, and exhaustion of other are equivalent synonymous exclusion of other. For example, not a vase, not a pillar in a house without humans. If the means of comprehending an object were that it appeared to cognition, owing to cognition directly precluding its negandum, then the negandum would appear as an aspect that is precluded. For example, I'll, I'll come back to this. For example, but just to read the, the uh, next sentence to help out. For example, the statement, there is no vase, must be ascertained by means of the negandum, the vase, appearing as an object of negation. And that negandum merely not existing or it being refuted. Um, so this is sort of an important paragraph. So let's see if I can read it in a way that... I can understand it also. If the means of comprehending an object were that it appeared to cognition, owing to cognition directly precluding its object of negation, so if, if we perceive something by negating what is not it, then what is not it would appear to our conception, then the negandum, that object of negation of non-vase, would appear as an aspect that is precluded. If, um, if conceptual mind actually operated in this way, then, uh, sorry, if cog uh, comprehension operated in this way, we would see that which is precluded. For example, the statement, there is no vase, must be ascertained by means of the object of negation, vase, appearing as an object of cognition. So we, when we walk into a room and we're looking for a vase and we say there is no vase, we're cognizing the vase and negating it and saying there is none, you know, like a circle with a vase in it and a line through it. Um, it would appear as an object of cognition, and that negandum merely not existing. The last part is weird. For example, the statement, there is no vase, must be ascertained by means of the negandum, the vase, appearing as an object of cognition, and that 
object of cognition merely not existing or it being refuted. So you're perceiving the object of negation not being there. You're actively perceiving its negation. Henrietta? Don't you, isn't it also saying that you have to have that object, the vase, has to be an object of your mind in order for you to perceive that it's not there? Right, right. So that was the first part. And then the second part is you're also actively perceiving. Right. Thank you. So affirmation or a positive phenomenon is a phenomenon that is not comprehended by the mind that directly comprehends it, directly precluding its negandum. So uh, an affirmative or positive phenomena is cognized without this clunky process of negating its opposite. For example, pillar form consciousness or produced. If illustrated by a pillar, then it is not comprehended by the mind that directly comprehends it, directly precluding its opposite. For a pillar is posited as an affirmation since it's perceived to be established as the perceived object of that cognition. So uh, when we perceive through our senses, objects present themselves. We don't, uh, there's no process on our part of precluding their opposite. So this belabored um, description of how this process works. And let's go on a little bit. We have a little bit more time. Um, okay, we have to do the implicative and non-implicative. So Continuing where we were, detailed explanation through briefly elaborating the classifications of negation. If negation is classified, then there's two types, non-implicative negation and implicative negation. So that belabored description was all a setup and a preliminary to, to understanding the subtlety and profundity of this very important distinction of implicative and non-implicative negation. The difference between these two is whether another phenomena isn't or is implied in the wake of negating its negandum. The former is called a non-implicative negation, the latter is called an implicative negation. Further, uh, let's see, I'll skip, well no, the quote is good. The verses of Loka Pariksha referred to by Nagarjuna quote in Bhavaveka's Lamp of Wisdom state, the negation of existence is not the apprehension of non-existence. So it's not an implicative, it's a non-implicative negation. Just as stating it is not black does not mean it's, it is white. Thus saying the object is not black indicates merely that it is not black. It does not indicate it's some other color such as white. So too saying that object lacks inherent existence indicates merely negation of inherent existence or merely an absence of inherent existence. It does not establish that inherent existence exists and so on. It doesn't say, so when we negate the inherent existence of phenomena, we're not saying that there is a thing called inherent existence that happens to not uh, appear in the, in the case of the chair or the table, right? So the object of negation 
is we're, we're negating something that is not a thing. It's not a real thing. If such statements indicated something other than the mere negation of the negandum, then lacking inherent existence would become an implicative negation. And th through that, the difference between the two negations could, can be understood. Thus, all negations are subsumed under these two types. So if the negation of inherent existence, um, if, if such statements indicated something other than that, sorry, other than the mere negation of the negandum, then lacking inherent existence would become implicative. It would be saying that there is an in, uh, inherent existence, but this poor one phenomena happens to not have it. <clears throat> one thing in that sentence about one, uh, it's it actually says it doesn't establish that non-inherent existence exists, which is like the double negative. Uh, right, it's just the opposite because I think you read it as it not established that inherent exists, but it's actually non-inherent existence exists, which is more convoluted perhaps, but. It's yes, I thought I said the absence of existence exists, but I probably didn't. So thank you for clarifying that. It does not establish that non-inherent existence exists. So when we negate existence, it doesn't create a thing called non-inherent existence. <clears throat> so Shantarakshita says in his text, thus there are two types of exclusion, applicative and non-implicative negation. Therefore, the definition of a non-implicative negation is that comprehended by directly precluding its negandum, where no other phenomenon is implied to awareness in the wake of negating its negandum. For example, the statement, there's no elephants here. For if, if it is asked, is there an elephant here or not, then stating there is no elephant here negates there is an elephant here. And since that statement does not imply to awareness, and, anything other than an elephant, such as a tiger and so on, it is posited as a non-applicative negation. So, you know, contextually it could be different. Like if you walk into a large room and it's totally messed up and the furniture is like thrown everywhere and it's adjacent to a, uh, a zoo. And if you said, uh, is, there, is there an elephant here or not? And you said no. It could leave open the door, so to speak, for there to be other creatures there. But anyway, um, I have so to say to... that we've been critiquing this book a lot. But I would say that that first sentence there was actually a pretty reasonable way of describing that phenomenon or that concept. They they actually did a halfway decent job of it. <laughs> so I figured we ought to give credit where it's. That's good. right. I think they do a lot of stuff pretty so, good. So, to be fair, you know, rather than always critique. Yes. Thank you. Let's look at the positives and not exclude the positives by negating the... Anyway. Um, so, too, space is the mere negation of obstructive contact. 
and even though its proper name does not contain a term of negation, it is posited as a non-implicative negation, since nothing other than the mere negation of obstructive contact appears when space appears to the mind. So in other words, space is a non-implicative negation, and it's not a real phenomenon. They just reveal to us. Uh, we can skip the quote talking about Brahmins and alcohol. If non-implicative negations are classified, there are two types. A non-implicative negation whose negandum or object of negation exists, and a non-implicative negation whose negandum does not exist. An example of the first is there's no pillar or there's no house. The negandum is there's a pillar and there's a house, and both are possible phenomena. We've all experienced them. A non-implicative negation whose negandum does not exist is, for example, there are no horns of a hare, of a rabbit, slash rabbit, because it's impossible. Um, therefore, the definition of an, of an implicative negation is that comprehended by means of directly precluding its negandum where another phenomena is implied in the wake of negating its negandum. So, I should have uh, sort of changed my tone of voice or something. We went through non-implicative negations, and now we're going through implicative negations. So the definition of an implicative one is that comprehended by means of directly precluding its object of negation, where another phenomenon is implied in the wake of doing that. For example, the opposite of not a vase. That is posited as an implicative negation since a vase is implied or comprehended in the wake of the mind that directly comprehends a vase, directly precluding that which is not a vase. Um, and then they give some examples. Skipping that quote, if implicative negations are classified according to how other phenomena are implied, therefore, negation directly implying another phenomena, negation indirectly implying another phenomena, negation both directly and indirectly implying another phenomena, and negation implying another phenomena owing to its context. So this is just a little, they're sort of, uh, the system's very obsessive, compulsive, way of breaking down how implication can occur. It can be gross or subtle, you know, it can be uh, direct or indirect or both or neither. For example, the statement, a mountainless plain directly implies another phenomena, i.e. mountains. The statement, fat, <laughs> this is the funniest example. For some reason, they always talk about Devadatta, who is the Buddhist one of the Buddha's cousins who tried to kill him. Uh, fat Devadatta does not eat food at night. <laughs> so this uh, indirectly implies another phenomenon. Um, the statement, fat Devadatta who does not eat during the day is not thin, both directly and indirectly implies another phenomenon. And the, the implication is that if it's fat, then he's got to eat, be eating at some point of the day, and if it's not at night, then it's during the day. I don't know, the second one about, and he's not thin, is a little bit odd, but that's the direct, as opposed to the indirect implication. And the statement, that person is either a warrior or a Brahmin caste, but not a Brahmin caste, <laughs> implies another phenomenon due to context. So the, the, that's their scheme. The, con, the fourth one is like 
uh, different than the first three and skipping all, all of skipping the further explanation of these the, the way that this occurs let's skip to basically the end um, uh, actually let's see a few paragraphs later so the way this occurs is one two three four and then furthermore Avalokavrata says in his explanation of the lamp of wisdom, skipping that, skipping naughty dharmas. I've never heard of that guy. Uh, summary of negations. And then the next paragraph, and then moreover, Vasubandhu. Let's do that for our, our ending up. Vasubandhu states in his explanation on the first dependent origination, its divisions, catchy title. One, the negation of existence. Two, another. Three, similarity. Four, inferiority. Five, small amount. Six, absence. Seven, antidote. The first of these seven classifications of negation is implicative negation. Sorry, non-implicative. And the remainder are implicative negation. So, um, his he gives a little list of these seven just to for some reason to flesh them out in a different way and then on the next page somebody uh, else does it with 15 ways so they go a little wild with uh, coming up with different nuances of negation implicative but and mostly mostly implicative negation but let's let's now come to the conclusion which is uh, just before the next section that we started the class with the three classes of ascertainable object. <clears throat> and, and it's funny, from where I stopped towards the end of the chapter, they progressively go through smaller and smaller lists of negations until we get to the second to last paragraph. Thus, there are two non-implicative negation and implicative negation and uh, skipping the next sentence to conclude the principles of negation and affirmation are especially emphasized in the buddhist text in general and in the writings on the middle way philosophy and epistemology in particular because they're corrected with co uh, connected rather with correct understanding of how the mind engages with reality as a whole more specifically, they're connected with understanding clearly the manner in which language and concepts operate by way of negation and affirmation with their relevant objects. The principles of negation are also connected with other issues. For example, when engaging in negation or affirmation through reasoning, one can correctly ascertain the types of negation and affirmation involved, as well as discern through logic, the boundaries of what is negated, which is the most important part. For these reasons, the presentation on negation is accorded such critical importance in the treatises. The boundaries of what is negated. So that's uh, very um, important because when we start to look into like egolessness of self and emptiness of phenomena, we initially understand those in very vague ways. Um, and so, so what they mean by boundaries are the way that we apply the negation to uh, the negandum, that which is negated, is we like we we understand the object of negation to a certain point, and I'm like creating a, a boundary with my arms of like, you know, I think the sense of self is this, 
and that's what I'm negating. And we have this bound, like identified uh, collection or uh, object uh, of a negation, and um, gradually we get progressively more sophisticated in how we understand how we we project the sense of self which thereby is the uh, object of negation and the boundary that we've initially created of defined by uh, by exclusion of identifying what is my sense of self which uh, we, you know, is a, is a universal sense of self is universal, and we identify it by negating everything that we think is not the sense of self, and that changes over time as we get more sophisticated in our understanding of what the sense of self is, or the sense of the uh, inherent re uh, reality of all phenomena as opposed to emptiness, which is understood by negating that object of inherent existence of phenomena. And uh, I, um, when we do that, we have to, uh, or we should ideally do it in a way where we're not um, defining that set of phenomena that we um, excluded when we when we defined what is it what is inherent existence and we think of inherent existence is X and so uh, is there anything that's not inherent existence and there's this this habitual propensity the way our conceptual mind works is that initially when we try to understand emptiness and not only initially, but up until we actually understand emptiness, and it's no longer conceptual experience, but it's, an, it's uh, a direct ex cognition or experience, we are continually understanding emptiness in the sense of um, there being something that's not inherent existence. And so, we're we're necessarily negating inherent existence in an applicative way because we still think there's something that's not in inherent existence if that makes any sense anyway that i think is enough for the uh presentation of other objects and We'll go on from there. Any so comments, questions, thoughts, observations, predictions? Henrietta? Is it is the boundary does the boundary also pertain to not not going too far and not being nihilistic about ascertaining what you're negating? In other words, that's right? an, yeah, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting idea. Is um, I mean, not are, that I would. Yeah. <laughs> I'm anywhere near going that far, but because <laughs> I'm usually have trouble, you know, ascertaining emptiness at all. But um, 
that's the flip side, right? That is the flip side. So that would be negating everything. Um, that's a great way of putting it. Um, what what would be what would we be negating when we are over negating? Our experience. So you're saying our experience is truly real. So you're saying there is true existence. So it's an implicative negation. That was good. That was a good moment we shared there. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the meaningfulness of it. You know, maybe it's like before you put it into words sort of thing. You know, it's... uh, If you look at at this description of a poha, of like creating a concept out of the sort of murkiness of our thought world and like, you know, to say the word uh, tree and we all come up with a tree, right? And so if we say inherent existence or true reality, we sort of dredge that up out of that murkiness of our idea world, thought world, and we sort of say, okay, that's what we're talking about when we say that word. And um, so to, to think about what is it that um, we're negating in that case when we dredge it up are we are we negating what we dredge up from our thought world as being true existence or are we um, negating something else but you know so we we just talked about universals and particulars and so when we think of the inherent existence of phenomena, that things are real. That's universal, right? Is there a particular of that? <laughs> and uh, so, so we're saying that universals are not really real, are not real phenomena, actually. So when we negate it, are we negating something that's there? No, we're not. <laughs> so, like, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, we're negating an idea that's lodged in our mind. But I thought you meant, no, we're not negating an actual phenomenon of it. Yeah, so continue with that. Is the, is the idea a particular or universal? It's a universal. So ideas... Um, um, I like this. You're the Buddha, and I'm like the guy next to you who gets all the play. <laughs> You're the straight guy, right? <laughs> well, I think I think you know where we're heading with this. 
I sort of lost my train of thought there, but. Well, but, uh, I mean, it's just the the idea is that you were trying to steer clear of total nihilism, right? While at the same time pursuing this, you know, understanding. So that's what, all I was trying to say when I said the experience. I, I was right, right. Nihilism. So nihilism is is a universal, right? And nihilism is identified by negating what it's not. So in thinking about nihilism, we're negating true existence. We're, we're negating the um, reality of true existence. And when we identify true existence, we're negating nihilism and so we say okay when when uh, we understand emptiness we're negating the true existence of inherent phenomena or the inherent existence of phenomena and um, and we're not um, we're not asserting nihilism by doing that. We're not asserting that there's not inherent existence. You know, we're not, <clears throat> to use the language we just went through, we're not, um, by, by negating inherent existence, we're not perceiving non-inherent existence. That would be nihilism, right? If we were, and that would be an implicative negation. We would be, we would be looking at non-inherent existence in order to negate inherent existence. I don't know, something like that. It's just fun with words. Does it, doesn't concepts. it depend what system, <laughs> what tenant you're using, what system of? Yeah, that it it, uh, it impacts the way you describe the terminology. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for bearing through that. That's that's like the 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 what do they call it? The wooliest stuff or something? Some you know like really gnarly material. Anyway, let's dedicate our merit. <clears throat> By this merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. So, thank you very much. Great to see you, and see you next week. Thank you. See you soon. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.